Dear Lord, thank you again for another chance to be able to speak your truth, your words, and not ours. To be able to strengthen those who are of the faith with facts that you established long before our time. We thank you for your constantly sending your angels as an encampment all around us, keeping us from the wicked one that exists, that runs this world. We thank you for having the fellowship to come together to put aside our, our things that sometimes may be a little more important or feel like they're more important and come to hear what your truth has to say. We give you the glory and the honor. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the topic for today is going to be uh, the truth about pride and really how it relates to us as a body of believers, those who follow Christ, and how it relates to the world. Um, it's something we definitely need to know because uh, there's there's a, a very devastating end to a prideful uh, person's life. And we want to make sure that we are not in that category. And then how we also ought to handle those who we come across in the faith, and of course not in the faith, who uh, live according to pride. In Proverbs 16, 18, it says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It says, before you fall apart, before things become devastated, pride was leading the way. But in order for us to really get into understanding uh, what, you know, the truth about pride, we need to know what pride actually is. And if you look at Oxford Dictionary, uh, pride is described as having deep feelings or deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, the achievements of those whom is closely associated with or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. And they also define it as our consciousness of one's own dignity. So basically, according to the, the dictionary, generally pride is basically having a deep pleasure or satisfaction for one's own achievements. But when you look at the Bible, the Bible describes pride as wickedness, completely opposite of what the world say pride is. Pride actually is a good thing according to the world, but according to God, it is uh, evil. It's, it's not something that God takes pleasure in at all. You know, God through Solomon declared in Proverbs 8.13, he said, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. He says, I hate pride and arrogance and the evil way and the foreign mouth I do hate. God if you look at the Bible, you'll find that there are very few times in the Bible God literally says, I hate something. Where he steps out and just makes a point to he cannot stand a certain thing. And, and one of them is pride. You know, and the reason he hates pride is because pride ultimately is an utter rejection of God and his will, his way of life. When we're prideful, we live in this life of this haughty spirit. We don't have any thoughts about doing God's will. We don't want to get to know him. We're all about us. We're living out Oxford Dictionary and really 
having deep pleasure and satisfaction for our own achievements and whatever we feel like we accomplished. But realize that God never said to hate people who have pride or people who live prideful. All right? And the reason being because at the end of the day, we're all sinners. We're all uh, evil, according to the Bible. And it's not just because how David explains in Psalms 51.5 that we are all born in sin, but it's also because what Apostle Paul elaborates on in a letter that he writes to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul gives some very great insight about who we are uh, as people in the faith now and who we used to be before. And verse 1, he says, And you, he have made alive, who were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. You know, Paul right here gives uh, a real good picture of who we are in the faith and ultimately who everyone is. By nature, we are children of wrath. That's just who we are. You know, some people say, well, you know, there's a little bit of good in somebody. You know, people do good things. They're nice. You know, they make uh, uh, wonderful decisions. They're not always bad. They're not out here committing murder and rape and whatever the case may be. So there's some good in a person. But Paul clearly shows us that that's not true. Our nature, our natural makeup, deserving of the wrath of God. We are wicked, wretched sinners. But he goes on to say in verse four, he said, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, it says, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It says, he says that, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show us exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul is telling us that it is only because of the love of God, the grace that he sent us through Christ Jesus, that we who come into this faith are no longer children of wrath. Our, our, our nature originally was that we are dead. We're not kind of hanging on a little bit, floating in there. We're not on life support. We were dead in trespasses, meaning we were guaranteed eternal damnation separation from God, but his love showed up and through faith, we were brought out of this lifestyle, this, this wickedness, like everyone else is, and we're now brought into a reborn life. 
And the reason being, he says, for we are his workmanship in verse 10, created in Christ for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. And those good works is to live according to the will of God, as Christ outlined and the apostle Paul and the other disciples had pointed out, had established. That's the good works, to go out and be the light, to be the salt, to do the will of God. But it's not possible until we are reborn. You know, I talk to people from time to time and they say, you know, these people are not that bad. Some people are not this evil. You know, you're looking at it all the wrong way. Here is what Paul is saying. Uh, regardless of what you do and how good you do it, how happy you are to do it, until you are made alive through Christ, you are children, a child of wrath, period. It's important to understand this. Because so many people will try to give you their resume or someone else's resume regarding their acts and their deeds and how awesome and sweet this person is. You know, a lot of us, well, we probably haven't went out and murdered anybody or done any of the most wretched things out there. Uh, and we would kind of consider ourselves at least decent people. We're somewhat decent. But that's not how God sees us. Until we are made alive. We're, we're, you know, doomed for destruction. So how does God address pride? This is important to look at. In James 4, 6, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. At the end of the day, God cannot use a prideful person. He can't. He resists them. I know people say, I've been praying and I've been asking God and, and I've been seeking him and, and God's going to make a way. He will never make a way. He will never answer your prayer and he will not use you if you're prideful. The Bible says he resists you. So whenever we think we may be speaking to God, reaching out to him, calling on him, for he don't even want nothing to do with a prideful person. He pushes the person away. But those who are humble, he said he gives grace. Grace meaning that he will answer our prayers. He will stand in the gaps. He will do things for us. He'll make a way even though we don't deserve it. But it's only through humility that we get to experience God's grace rather than his resistance. But what does it really mean to be humble? Humble truly is, is serving the Savior, not self. That's humility. It's putting yourself aside and doing the will of God. And Christ says this in Luke 9, 23. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Not on Sunday at church. Not on a Wednesday night call. He says every single day when you don't want to, when you don't feel like it, when it seems like it don't make sense, when ain't no blessings flowing out of heaven. He said, if you desire to come after me, you have to do it every single day. So to, de to deny self, ultimately, it's to deny a love for the world and things thereof. 
There's so many different things in the world we can quote unquote fall in love with. Sports, movies, events, restaurants, you know, gyms, anything. We can find anything to just say, you know what, I really love this. I got to do it every Tuesday at 7 o'clock. Or I got to be there every week. I got to hang out with these people. And do these certain things. He's saying deny of you and the things of this world. And John writes this in 1 John 2, 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. He said, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. All of it. Anytime we get that glare, that glare in our eyes, that sparkling, the car, the house, the new job, the career, the business. He said, the lust for these things, the pride for the life. The lust of the eyes, he said, it don't come from God. It don't come from the Father in heaven. He said it comes from the world. And when we fall in love with these things, we don't have the love of God. And if we don't have his love, we better believe we don't have his grace. We don't have his mercy. Now, I want to talk about sexual immorality and what it has to do with the church and the body of Christ and how we ought to handle it. And when I'm talking about sexual immorality, I'm not talking specifically about adultery or fornication or even what we see today, the pride, quote unquote, community. Where you have these different uh, sexual lifestyles. I'm talking about the entire idea of sexual immorality. Because sometimes we can look at one category and say, well, I didn't do that. Or I'm not a part of that group. Or I don't condone this. So then we take that lifestyle or this way of life and we say, well, you know, that's what God is referring to when he talks about sexual immorality. But the truth is it covers all categories. And it's important to realize this truth because the church is coming under siege from this these false ideas, this perversion of God's word when it comes to sexual immorality. And many have given way to the lies of the enemy and fallen into the hands of Satan to do his work because in the day we don't want to stand on the truth. We want to twist and, and, and turn the word so that we don't upset people or we don't offend somebody. But Paul gives one of the best letters to the body of Christ, to the church, the chosen of not only what to do with sexual immorality in the church among the followers of Christ, but also as it relates to those who are of the world, who are not in the faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, this is what Paul writes. He said, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality that is not named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife 
Now, Paul's talking to the church. He's not talking to some people out on the street. He's talking to the people who say they believe in Jesus Christ. That they are called, that they are disciples, that they are ministers, elders. He's saying that there is a sexual immorality among you that not even the unbelievers are involved in. And in verse 2, he says, And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. Paul is showing here that they, they were prideful. They were puffed up. They were, uh, you know, they kind of wore a, a badge on their sleeve as if what they're doing desire is, is recognition of some type of accomplishment. And he said they should have mourned that the person that's doing these things can be taken from among you. And in verse 3, he says, For I indeed am absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present. Him who has done this deed. So listen, Paul is saying here, very important piece. Because, you know, you hear people say all the time, don't judge me. Only God can judge. Don't judge me. Listen, Paul is talking to the church. And he's saying he's already judged. He didn't condemn the person, meaning he didn't sentence them all to eternal damnation, but he judged the person in particular as it relates to the matter of what they were involved in. And here's what he says we ought to do. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, Paul isn't talking about killing anybody here. Right? He's not talking about, uh, you know, doing anything violent to this person. What he's saying, he's going to explain right here in the next in the next few verses. He says, your glory is not good. He said, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover has sacrificed for us. Paul is telling us right here that uh, we have to take out the, the leaven. We have to take out. The, the little thing that we think isn't, isn't, isn't important. Oh, they just, you know, they're just over here living their life to each his own. We're all God's children. Paul says, take that out. Because that little bit can contaminate the whole thing. It can cause the entire ministry, the entire body, the entire group to fall apart. Swell up with lies. He said, therefore, in verse 8, let us keep the feast, not of the old leaven, nor with the leaven of the malice and the wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincere, sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth, two important words. Sincerity, you are truly committed and true to the truth. Not to what they're bringing in, especially what we see today. In a lot of these uh, quote unquote church institutions, that it's okay to live a sexual immoral, immoral life because, you know, 
God did away with sin on the cross. All these things, there's so many different things you're hearing people say today, perverting the word of God. They're bringing truth to it, but it's not the absolute truth. They're twisting it around to justify flesh, desire to do things that God has never told us to do. That really breaks down the body of believers. That those, those groups that allow this stuff to happen. And in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexual immoral people. Now, listen to what Paul explains here, because a lot of churches get this wrong. A lot of people get it wrong because in a day, like I said, it's about loving the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and, and the love for the things of this world. He's in verse 10. He said, yet I certainly do not mean with sexually immoral people of the world or with covetous, with extraordinaries, with idlers, since then you, you would need to go out of the world. Paul's saying, listen, he's not talking about the people who are not a part of the faith. He's not saying don't keep company with people who are not a part of the faith out there on your job, in the marketplace, at the park, in the community. He's saying if you try to keep away from wicked people of this nature, you would have to leave the world because there's no way to avoid it. They're everywhere. He says in verse 11, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral. And he goes on, or covetous or idlers, or revelers, or drunkards, or extraordinaries. Not even to eat with such a person. Now, this is a very, very deep, profound statement. Because if you're, if you're real and honest enough, you look around, if you've been to enough churches, big church, small church, you've been there long enough, I bet you've met one person that fit that category. At least one of these categories in there. And we've all probably have sat down and had a meal or a conversation or socialized with a person who names to be a brother, who is called to be a part of this faith, who says they believe, but is living this lifestyle. He said, avoid that person completely. Don't even cross paths with them if you can avoid it. So important to realize. Now, this is not something you want to hear about in today's church. They're not going to talk about this stuff. Because then they say, oh, look, your call is in division. You're trying to, you know, you're hateful and all these different things. But here's why Paul is telling us this. Because if you don't do it, you're going to end up like them in one way or another. Paul says, don't, don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. He said, bad company corrupts good character. You just got to hang around them long enough. And eventually you'll be down the same road. As they are. And we have to look at something even more important as well. Notice that Paul never said rebuke or correct the person. He didn't say chastise him. He didn't say pull him over and try to talk to him. He said remove that person from among you. And here's the reason why. Because the person claims to be a brother or a believer. And they have chosen to accept this lifestyle they're now under the control of Satan. Period. There's no other way to look at it. You know, I heard a pastor say a while ago, well, can you fall into this kind of lifestyle, 
you know, and be controlled by Satan if you have come into this faith. Well, well Paul's saying right here is possible. Those who, who, who are named a brother, a believer, so those who have fellowship with us and says that they uh, follow Jesus, yet they follow the very things that God hates. You know, we have to know this for ourselves. That's why I always reiterate how important it is to know the word of God. We just can't sit up in church and hear what the pastor have to say. It's important. All right. In verse 12, he says, for we for what I have to what do I have to do with judging those who are outside? He says, do you not judge those who are inside? He's talking about the faith. He's talking about the fellowship, the body of believers. He said, but those who are outside, God judge. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Just put them away. Don't try to work things out. Don't try to negotiate something. You got to put them away. And, you know, for the everyday church goer, how does this apply? Well, ultimately, the decision to put someone out who is walking according to uh, sin in this form and doesn't want to repent. They've accepted this lifestyle. It's the church's leadership who are supposed to take this action. But what do we do if we go to church and that's just our place? Here's the thing. If the leaders don't step up and do what's right, you have to make a decision uh, to leave that church. Period. Because eventually it's going to bring the whole building down. That's it. The, the old leaven is going to rise up into the new. And because it wasn't purged out, it's going to trickle over into the lives of everybody that's in that congregation. And then they will all eventually be living in falsehood. And we see this today. We see people who are following the, the Levitical priesthood law, at least part of it, the new you know, don't eat certain foods or tithe or you're robbing God. And then they're bringing a curse over themselves. And all the while is because there were things that came into that uh, fellowship of believers that was never removed. Never removed. And when you look at the Methodist church, that's exactly what happened here recently. I want to say a year or two ago. They've been going back and forth regarding what is actually sexual immorality. What is sin? Is it okay? Should we allow uh, people of the same sex to marry and do all these different things? Instead of actually removing it, because God never said counsel it. He didn't say debate. He didn't say vote. He said remove it. Get it out. And after all these years of constantly going back and forth at their conference trying to vote on how they want to handle it, they finally had to take a split. And one half of Methodists went the other way and the other half went the other way. But had they been obedient to God and purged themselves from the old unleavened, they wouldn't have to split. So what does God do to the proud? What happens to them in the end? Well, let's read about it in Revelations 21.8. Christ tells John this. He said, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idlers, all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire 
which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Every single person who has lived that life and did not repent will be cast into the lake of fire. And you got to remember, this is what Jesus tells John after he rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God. This was the final revelation, teaching, explanation, word of Christ given to the people of God. But we live in a world today where end time prophecy is being fulfilled and the word of God is being perverted to tell people, no, Christ didn't say any of this stuff. In fact, the Bible says that, you know, Jesus did away with sin. So now we can just live any kind of way. Completely perverting the word of God to fulfill the lust of the flesh. So important to realize. And before Christ even gives this revelation, in fact, before Christ even began his ministry, in Isaiah 2, 12, it says, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted high, and he shall be brought low. Everyone that's walking around fulfilling the pride, and it doesn't matter what it is. Pride as it relates to, you know, I'm proud of myself because I did this or I'm part of the pride community doing whatever sexual thing I want to do with whoever I want to do it with. He said, every last one will be brought low. But what is sexual immorality? I know we all look at it and say, we well, you know, is it two men together? Is it two women? Is it, you know, what is it? Well, there's two verses in the Bible that gives a flat-out understanding of what sexual immorality is. And the first one you're going to find after God formed Eve out of Adam. He declared in Genesis 2.24, he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. The Bible's talking about that time when they come together after they're married, and they they that's it. They join together. That's anything outside of that, God never designed. It was never his plan. Anything, whether it's same sex, adultery, fornication, it was never God's design. And Christ follows up with this when we fast forward to his ministry. This is when the Pharisees tried to challenge Jesus asking about divorce. They're always trying to challenge him. It's not because they didn't know the answer. It's that they were trying to pervert God's word in order to say that Jesus is not who he says he is. That's all it was. That's the whole reason the Pharisees kept coming to Jesus with already known scripture. To get them to be able to say he's not the Messiah. And in Matthew 19, Christ said in verse 4, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason, man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, 
They are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. But I tell you what, the separation of what God had ordained back in the garden and what Christ had proclaimed, reiterated, and lined out to be true, man is trying to separate it all across the board. Telling children it's okay that two men have a relationship together. Telling children that two women will be just fine with God doing what they want to do together. And now this very wicked evil that's coming forth saying that you should get some type of surgery or medication to change your sex because apparently God made a mistake. This is no different than when the Pharisees came to Jesus and asking him about divorce. See, people who argue God's word, you have to understand, they know his word or else they wouldn't argue it. They've been to a church. They've read the Bible. They're trying to find ways around the truth to justify a decision to gratify the lust of the flesh. Now, remember, Paul outlined that we were all by nature children of wrath. While we may not have done all the wicked and nasty, disgusting things that other people has done, it's in our nature. You know, and all it really takes is the right situation or the right time. And boom, we are fulfilling the lust of the flesh. But again, it is through Christ who made us alive by grace. Through faith. That we are able to. Come out of that lifestyle. We don't have to be like everybody else. Even though the enemy says there's no way out. So again. What happens to people who commit sexual immoral acts. When they do something contrary to. What God said in Genesis. When he created Adam and Eve. And what Christ talked about in reference to divorce. The end of the day. They go to hell if they don't repent. And Paul backs up what Christ has said as well as what was designed by God in Genesis when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 9. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idlers, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals nor sodomizers, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extraordinaries will inherit the kingdom of God. Period. So if you don't get into the kingdom, where are you going? Hell. And there's what Paul, I love how he just continued to remind us that we ain't who we think we are when we get high, mighty, and prideful. In verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord by the spirit of our God. So whether we live the life or not, whether we had the thoughts lived or not, by nature, we were there. Period. You know, I, I shared a post the other day about, uh, you know, a man should not label a woman as, as, as excuse me, a man should not lay with a man as a man will lay with a woman. Uh, Leviticus, I believe it's chapter 18, verse 22. And people are still mad 
And it was probably like two or three days ago I posted that. Call me evil, call me wicked, said I'm a bigot in the whole nine yards. Still cussing me out all up and down <laughs> social media, sending me private hate messages and stuff like that. Because I share the truth of what God's word says. Period. Now, is that Leviticus? Absolutely. Is that under the law? Absolutely. But here's the thing. When it comes to uh, uh, the, the, the relationship that a man and a woman are supposed to have, it has never changed. Though we have been redeemed from the curse of the law, sexual immorality is one thing that will still, from Genesis to Revelations, get you sent to hell if you don't repent. It won't be because you didn't sustain from eating pork or, you know, you, you, you didn't wash your hands before you eat. We have to understand a man and a woman being together is God's original design for humanity. That's his original makeup. And like everything else that's God's original construct, Satan came along and twisted it. He didn't completely say, don't get married. He said, it's okay for other people who are of the same sex to get married. At the end of the day, it all circles back to that one word, God cannot stand, and it's pride. Because pride ultimately comes down to you doing what you want and not what God wants. That's why he has no second thoughts about casting a prideful person into hell because they're not going to do his will on earth. Why will they serve him in heaven? They won't do it. There is no way to do it because you don't have that heart for God. You have the heart for self. And when you look at what Christ did for humanity, the Bible says that he was obedient unto death. He humbled himself to the most destructive and damning thing a person could ever experience in life, and it was death. But even leading up to death, he was slapped. He was talked about. He was lied on. He was betrayed. He was denied. They called him a demon-possessed person. He dealt with all kind of stuff out of humility. And the reason being, because he wanted to do God's will and not his own. And if we are not at that place, then the truth of the matter is we're prideful. While we may not be running around sleeping with 25 people of the same sex, we still have a sense of pride and God hates it. We have to put ourselves aside, as Christ said. We have to deny ourselves and take up our cross every single day. Not when it feels good, not when we got money in the bank, not when people rooting us on, but in those times of dark despair where it seems like we can't hear nothing from God, we still have to pick up that cross and keep one foot in front of the other as we follow Jesus. So for sexual immorality and any other sins, pride of any sort, how do we get out of that? How do we leave? How do we get set free? The world says it's impossible. Some say now they're saying it's genetic. You know, or you're supposed to do it and there's no way it's acceptable. God 
wants it to happen. But the truth is, there are people who want to get free. They are struggling to come out. But it's one scripture that clearly says how we get free. And I'm not talking about free and then uh, we run back into it because I never really got free. No, here's how it goes. John writes in 1 John 1, 9, he said, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We got to confess. We got to declare that we are prideful, that we are sexually immoral, that we are a fornicator, whatever the case may be, whatever that uh, unrighteous thing is, we got to speak it, declare it, confess it to God. But it's just like being an alcoholic. No matter how much you want to help an alcoholic, no matter how much you tell them they're alcoholic, you can't help them until they want to help themselves. Period. Until you want to come out, until you want to be set free, until you go ahead and say, you know what, I'm an alcoholic, you're going to always be one. God wants to set us free. Not just, not just to avoid eternal damnation, but he, he, he actually would like for us to be a testimony of who he is. That he can set you free. That he can make a way. He can open up a door that you can walk through so you can leave all that unrighteousness behind. At the end of the day, him being the God who is absolutely 100% a God of love, he gives you the free will to choose the path you want to take. He ain't going to force you. He ain't going to pull you. He ain't going to slap you. He going to let you decide the path you want to go. That's it. And whichever, decide, whichever way you decide to go, if you decide to go with God, he'll, he'll order your steps and he'll make sure that you have a route that never turns you back down that road. If you want to go down the road or stay on the road or even go back down that road, it's up to you. So I'm going to end by saying this final scripture that I always tell us we need to really look intently on as a believer. Revelation 3, 5. Christ said, he who overcomes, I will not blot out their name from the book of life, but I will confess their name before my father and his angels. We need that confession. I don't care how many good acts you do. I don't, if you want to try to meet Mother Teresa's standards, it won't matter. Until we overcome our pride, until we walk in humility, holding up our cross daily, we go to court. We're going to have to answer. And I hope that when we answer, the reply will be back to us. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joys of your master. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, for your truth. We thank you for allowing us to stand on your facts. 
We thank you for letting us see how we can come out of this life of pride, these lies that Satan has orchestrated to keep us in bondage. We know that we can be set free to do your will and to one day hear you say, well done. We give you the glory and the honor. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.